Welcome back, all you perky penguins, to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, sustainability, all about how we can all try to live our lives in a little more environmentally friendly way. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am here with the wonderful Casey. Hello, everyone. How are you doing, Casey? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. The weather has like officially turned fall here, and I had just a pep in my step that I didn't realize I had lost (laughs) over the summertime. Basically we had hurricane Ida come through, um, which our house is fine, but we did have a lot of damage within our town. But the day after was like 70 degrees. And I like wore jeans for the first time in a long time and was like outside. We had a fire that night. It was like, uh, perfect fall so so that has that has got me happy what about you Sarah yeah you know I got a little bit of that yesterday too and I didn't even really think about it or register but I went out to eat last night outdoors and yeah it was perfection but then by the end of the evening I mean this isn't really news for me but if you know me but I did put on a jacket Sarah is ectothermic, which is cold-blooded. I I do have a sweatshirt with me for most of the year, but I put on a jacket and it wasn't weird. It was understandable why I would have put a jacket on. So yeah, it is, it's, we're, we're turning, I mean, it is September now, so we're turning to fall. So we have to soak it up and enjoy it before we get our six months of winter sadness, if you're me. Yeah. So it's been nice and it was good for me to get a little bit of outdoor time in, even if it was city outdoor time. So yeah, that's nice. Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah. It's a, it's a good time of year around here for some outdoor, um, bird watching and I'm going to be actually tagging some, um, um, some monarch butterflies pretty soon. who will be migrating. Have you ever tagged butterflies before? No, I've never tagged butterflies before. So first of all, I have to find our net and then I will be, be going for them. We have a pretty small sample size. We're going to try and go for this year, but I'm excited about it. Yeah. I can't wait to hear about that. I've never tagged them either, but I just can imagine that it is somewhat of a delicate process. So yeah. If you're imagining like strapping a homing beacon to a <laughs> butterfly out there. Cause that's like initially when I think of tagging things, I think of like, we would have like radio collars that uh, elephants yeah. would wear, you know, yes. which is like a huge bulky yeah. thing. Would not um, work on a butterfly. Not no. work on a butterfly. They're like um, almost like sticker like things, right? It, it is. You... It's basically a sticker. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'm pretty sure the way they measure that is actually manual collection. So like you put the sticker on your butterfly, they're still able to fly and everything. And then as they make their way South, other people would be able to catch your butterfly, record the number and then keep that in the database. So it's a little bit more of a primitive version, but you Mm -hmm. really can't go. I'm sure one day we'll be able to go pretty high tech with it. But for now, I'm just going to be very gently placing stickers on butterfly wings. I'm nervous about it, but I'm also excited because I don't get to do a lot of conservation stuff now that I don't work in the field. So yeah, that'll be really exciting. Cool. So our episode this week is going to be slightly different. We are we are doing a full episode. I think it's going to be plenty long. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we're not going to do a review, but we will be sort of doing mini reviews of several different documentaries and docu-series as we're going along. I did want to mention, though, before we 
go into our main discussion part, a series that I I haven't, I haven't fully prepared for this. I didn't look at uh, when it was created. I want to say that it was like Earth Day of 2020 or something when this debuted. So it's been out for a little bit, uh, but I'd never watched it. It's called Absurd Planet on Netflix. And I've just watched the first couple episodes and I wasn't giving it my full attention, but it did strike me that it had similarities to the show that I reviewed on an earlier podcast called When Nature Calls that debuted earlier this year. And if you will remember, I wasn't super thrilled with that show. I think it had a lot of issues, but I did say that I thought there was an avenue there that would potentially be better if it were shorter and had a more educational component. And now I've discovered that that already exists uh, in, this, <laughs> in this Absurd Planet show. Now I still have issues with the, the Absurd Planet show and some of it is what we are going to talk about today. But if you are in that market where, where you're like, you know, David Attenborough puts me to sleep, and I don't have interest sort of in- You'll have tr- sweet dreams though. Tr- I know, right? <laughs> I'm just saying if you, if you're not, that's not your thing and you don't want to sit and watch, you know, an hour long nature show, this, you might check this out, uh, Absurd Planet. It, it, their episodes are only about 20 minutes long. It is still fairly irreverent. Parts of it are still too ridiculous for me. There are some sort of segments that they do that I'm just that just make me roll my eyes. Uh, but there are also parts of it that are funny. And the thing that they do better than at least that one episode of When Nature Calls that I watched is that they do incorporate some education. So there's some truth in the humor that I thought at times was done well. So there's sort of your first quick mini review of episode absurd planet Casey I, can't, I have already forgotten have you watched that one I think I like turned it on mm-hmm. when it first came out because I had already consumed with my voracious documentary appetite all the things that were available and it w- wasn't what I was looking for at the time so yeah. I don't I don't have a good memory other than being like I wasn't what I wanted yeah so. and it's not necessarily what I would be looking for a lot either but I do feel like it might be what there's a market for it for. yeah it does start off with a very intentional spoof on David Edinburgh as well just you know excellent so check that out if you have any interest and don't judge me if the later episodes are terrible because I haven't watched them yet well yeah so we're going to talk more about tv in a moment my question for you Sarah this week is listeners you may be familiar with Murray who is Sarah's wonderful uh, greyhound who's one of our mascots here at a little greener and Uh, I was wondering if you have an internal voice for Murray (laughs) and do you find yourself talking to him like he's a person? So definitely talk to him like he's a person. Although I do talk to him like he is a small child. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas uh, my cat, I would speak to more as an equal. I, I speak to my dog as a small child, but I do not. And this is the thing I know a lot of people do. I do not create an internal voice I have no idea like they don't talk back to me I don't have a a voice in mind that he would speak with or anything like that I've never done that but I absolutely talk to him you know when I'm getting ready to 
leave in the morning. I tell him what I'm doing that day and when I'm going to be back. And when I get back in the evening, I'm like, oh, hey, buddy, how was your day? <laughs> what did you do? Did you take a nap today? Like, <laughs> definitely have Catching a full up. on, full on one sided dialogue with him for sure. What about all of your uh, animal friends? I feel like you do have internal voices for them. Oh, yeah. But really like mine are, so yes, I talk to my animals. Um, I feel like if you have a pet and you don't talk to them, I don't understand. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know how that works. Yeah. Um, but honestly, like my voices for them, I don't think are super interesting, but Andrew's voices for our pets are much more interesting. He's looking at me through a window right now. <laughs> be like, I heard you say my name. So, uh, so we have a little terrier named ginger and, um, ginger, like to me has like a kid voice basically. Cause she's a dog and always really excited. And I talk yeah. to her, like she's a small child, just like you talk to Murray. Um, but she also was a rescue dog. So Andrew made up a voice for her. That's like this, like British, uh, orphan from a Dickens novel. Oh. And all over the musical basically for ginger, ginger. <laughs> except like it's awful because it's like falsetto terrible british accent like from <laughs> from andrew and, and the reason he uses it is because i hate it uh. and he doesn't he doesn't do it very often but i hate it because it's like so not what i hear it, her voice no <laughs> i mean i don't but, I don't have a voice pictured for her, but you, you describing that voice and me <laughs> seeing her, it does not what I uh, would But probably uh, more entertaining to me is uh, I have a cat named Rue. And so, you know, you give them a million nicknames, Rue, Ruser. And sometimes I'll call him Ruski, which is like a, a basically slang for like Russian. Uh -huh. And so Andrew pretends he is a Russian spy who oh, doesn't know that the Soviet my. Union has fallen. Well, that's pretty spectacular, actually. <laughs> Who always like speaks to me with fair disdain, which I don't yeah. appreciate because I am his mother, not the lady of the house or whatever that he decides he's like narrating to just like send back to uh, like the USSR. Oh my God. <laughs> so um, <laughs> this is all to say is yes, we do have voices for our pets, but th that's kind of something that obviously animals don't have voices for the most part, unless you have like a macaw, like they don't right. have voices. And so this is something that is a human attribute that we apply to animals. And today we are going to be talking about anthropomorphism and what that is, and mostly about its effectiveness in things like television and media and in conservation as well. So stay tuned. Sorry, I, Sarah, go ahead. No, I hate to interrupt your wonderful segue but I have to ask though since we're talking about anthropomorphism and this will play in maybe later you also have reptiles that's true do you talk to your tortoises in the same way that you talk to your dog and cat and do any of them have a voice um th so I I interact with the cat and the dog more often because they're much more needy than the tortoises are mm -hmm. but I would say that the tortoises have voices like some of them do some of them don't it's mostly because like when you come up to them they're like oh hi do you have food for me and that's like most of their internal dialogue or like put me down I don't like yeah. it like that's 
that's kind of the two voices, but like, I haven't necessarily assigned voices to our snakes or salamanders. The frogs call sometimes. So we'll like talk to them, but, uh, yeah. And then that's actually something we're going to talk about today is like what animals qualify for a voice and which ones do we not automatically assume have them? Yeah. So that's a great question. So stick around. We're going to talk about anthropomorphism and what that means and say it wrong, probably a lot because it's a really (laughs) long word. (laughs) And, uh, and especially this came up because we're going to talk about penguin town as well as some other, uh, documentaries. So stick around. Well, welcome back everyone to the main discussion of our episode. Again, we're skipping our main reviews because there's going to be a lot of feelings about how effective these uh, pieces of media are and how effectively they use anthropomorphism. So if we're going to use that big word, we should define it. Sarah, what is anthropomorphism? So anthropomorphism is basically assigning human traits or characteristics to anything that is not human. So tonight we're mostly talking about it with regards to giving human traits to animals. Um, And this could be, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about this with regards to emotions in particular, giving human emotions to animals, but really anything. So, you know, you think like, you know, Mickey Mouse or Winnie the Pooh or something like that, you know, these animals that walk upright and wear clothes and, you know, live in human houses and, and, you know, those, those types of things. So all of that is anthropomorphism, but, it, and it can be done with things other than animals as well. So, um, plants, inanimate objects, all kinds of things can be anthropomorphized. Yeah. And in our food waste episodes, we anthropomorphize the heck out of a piece of asymmetrical broccoli. Yes. We Frank, Frank, he has feelings and they will be hurt if you don't pick him at the grocery store. And just today I had someone, you know, referring to Hurricane Ida as like, oh, that she's, she's wench, you know, like this is, uh, you know, this giving her characteristics and it's a weather phenomenon. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, this originally the term oftentimes actually popped up to describe religious figures. So think about like Zeus or deities that are basically formed into humans with human mm-hmm. emotions. Um, that's happened across lots of religions, although there's plenty of religions that also have animals or non-anthropomorphized figures in them. And we anthropomorphize animals in very tiny ways and also in very big ways. And so this is a, a really big spectrum. In science, for a little bit, anthropomorphism is kind of a bad word, and it still kind of is. Like it's something that is typically not valued in a lot of science. So for a little bit there, um, especially along with Freud, where he was really looking into the mind and the inner motivations for humans, there was sort of a backlash within science and there was a movement called behavioralism where basically scientists were specifically only looking at the behaviors of animals and not trying to make assumptions about what their motivations are and were and, and what their emotional inner lives looked like. 
Um, but sometimes this was taken to such the extreme that basically they assumed that they acted only on instinct, that they were basically like living robots. Mm-hmm. So when I think of anthropomorphism, I kind of think of it as a spectrum. And on the one, one end is viewing them as robots. And Sarah, what might be the, the problem with that? <laughs> what, what sort of problems come from seeing animals without emotional lives? Well, I think if, yeah, if you're viewing animals as completely emotionless robots, you are, first of all, not going to care about them at all. And I think it's going to change how you impact. I mean, it's going to, people feel this way anyway, but there's just going to be a a superiority uh, uh, over them and a lack of care and concern about their welfare, I think is the biggest thing with that. Also, just the fact that it is inaccurate (laughs) what we know about animals right anyone who's spent time with animals right is like no they have feelings and like potential obviously a broad spectrum of reasoning out there and according to the book thinking with animals which honestly if this podcast had a budget i would have bought a lot of access to articles and this book which is a book about anthropomorphism and a book of essays about like how that impacts things across the world but basically they said the more time scientists spend with these animals the more they tend to anthropomorphize them so Mm -hmm. if you have somebody who's like out in the jungle with studying particular animals over time they are more likely to actually assign them a human emotions and things like that. Have you ever had an interaction with someone who sort of assumed this sort of point of view where they kind of saw the animals as more of a like programmed by instinct, not having an internal life? I mean, I'm sure that I have interacted, although I'm not like, there's not a specific story or anything coming to mind. I've had, I feel like many interactions with people who don't realize that like, you know, you can give a really basic story about like this orangutan has a personality that Mm -hmm. is a little bit more prefers to be by herself where this one tends to be more social. And like this weird light bulb thing happens where they're Mm -hmm. like, wait, they're not all the same. And, uh, and so like, there is a sort of a built-in assumption. I think it, it depends on your culture a lot and what your upbringing is, but that the, yeah, there, there's not necessarily always not, not everyone automatically anthropomorphizes animals. And one of the things you brought up there is that, um, one of the downfalls is that when we don't anthropomorphize animals, we do kind of have this superiority complex about us. And that's something that was brought up there is that some scientists actually worry that when we anthropomorphize animals, because we're taking it through our own lens, that we are cha- like changing them to a certain extent, which we'll talk more about, but it actually, they talked about in this book, thinking with animals that that's actually probably actually the opposite of what's going on when you anthropomorphize an animal, you actually are bringing yourself onto their same level to a certain extent. So it doesn't necessarily translate into what we would consider anthropocentrism, centrism, which is putting ourselves at the center of the universe and hierarchically above everyone else. It actually can help us think outside of our own species as well. But I think also, well, first of all, I'll ask you, like, what are the, what are the pros of, of anthropomorphism? What is like the best thing about it? Well, so, I mean, like we were just saying, like, if you, if you're not doing it at all, like if you're not recognizing animals as having any sort of emotion or processing ability, you're not going to connect to them. And so in some ways, that's what anthropomorphism helps us to do. It helps us to relate a little bit more to something that looks and seems very different from us. And that hopefully is going to help us to want to care more and do something about it as well. So 
even though anthropomorphism, like you were saying, has been considered sort of a dirty word in the science field and in some regards still is and does have problems for sure, I think it's also a really helpful conservation tool when it's used appropriately and with understanding of who you're talking to and what you're talking about. I think anthropomorphism anthropomorphism can help you build empathy um, between us and wildlife. Yeah, I think um, anyone who does conservation education sees anthropomorphism as a specific tool in their tool belt that can absolutely be helpful in building those empathetic bonds, but it has to also be used pretty judiciously um, because I think the other end of the spectrum from seeing animals as robots is seeing them as also people, Mm -hmm. not like equal to people, but also people. And there are downsides to that too, right? Right. And this is what I actually feel like I deal with more often uh, on on a regular basis. Um, at least with certain species, which again, we, we can talk about, but yeah, there's this idea that animals think and feel things the same way that we do. And I remember reading one article and I'm, I I don't remember who, who wrote it, but I, I remember the gist of what they were saying Uh, is that that does animals a disservice, you know, to just put them in the same box as how, you know, we think and feel and just to make that assumption isn't fair to them either, which I thought was an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I agree. What are some downsides to anthropomorphizing animals, maybe excessively? The biggest thing for me, well, I don't know if biggest, I, I, I think one of the hard things is is just to recognize that it's once again, it's just not true. Like that's not how animals live. And I think it can make us want to treat them sometimes in ways that they shouldn't be treated because they're not exactly like us. And this is a really broad, like simple example, but you know, it happens all the time where if you're with an animal that's solitary, like a tiger, for example, and you know, people will be like, oh, they're all by themselves in there. Why are they, why are they by themselves? And that's just the way that tigers live, you know, they're solitary animals, you know, so that's just something that you have to explain to people where they may feel like an animal is sad or lonely uh, or being mistreated for some reason because they're projecting their human emotions and feelings onto them. Yeah, this especially happens, I think, with animals that are closer in the relationship to us. Mm -hmm. So animals that look more similar to us, like primates, for example, when a chimpanzee is burying their teeth at you, which we've talked about before, it looks like a smile, but it doesn't mean the same thing as a smile for a human. Um, kind of means the opposite. Right. Uh, and, and similarly with like an orangutan, who's got a resting face that might look really sad or, or whatever emotion you really wanted to project onto it, because it's a resting face, basically that can, be an incorrect interpretation of a behavior for an animal. This also happens with animals like dogs. And I think people alter their training of their own pets because they treat their pet like another human in the relationship rather than an animal who has different standards. So that means like applying moral code to animals that they don't have. Right. So often what would happen is like, an animal will get into a fight with another animal and someone would ask, well, how are they getting punished? That animal just exhibited a natural behavior. They mm-hmm. don't have a moral code. They wouldn't understand a punishment. So there's no punishment for fighting, you right. know? 
well, and it happens too with like, I, you get questions, especially, you know, thinking about larger predators again, like those alligators, they're really mean, you know, thing, right. things like that, like saying an animal is mean or, you know, you get asked that question about lots of different animals All too. The are they, are they friendly? Are they mean? Right. Are they friendly? You know, is, is she nice? Right. Are, are they nice? Yeah. And, and so to recognize that it's not, well, listen, an alligator didn't, eat a dog or whatever because it's mean it's because that dog was in its space and it needed and it's food, food. like you right. know? so uh, things like that are dangers of over anthropomorphizing and it can cause people to think negatively about an Absolutely. animal sometimes if they're anthropomorphizing in that way that's a great point I I always like would get that question of like oh are they nice and I'm like there an orangutan <laughs> like doesn't doesn't compute because yeah. because they might have good relationships with other animals or they might have good relationships with certain people but to categorize either an individual or a species as xyz mean adjective or nice or, yeah yeah it's, um it's hard but there's also a line right of right. like aggressive i think might be a term that borders on mean and, but it would be a word that you might use for an animal. In a certain situation, right? And I think right. that's the catch and that's the, the challenge. And that's why this is such an interesting and good discussion. Um, hopefully this is interesting for listeners and not just for people who are in conservation education. But, uh, but I think it's, it's a really good one to have. And it's hard to find that line because when we're talking about this and you're hearing us say like, oh, you know, how do we talk about whether this animal is, you know, why does it not make sense to be asked if this animal is nice? We're not saying that these animals don't have personalities or emotions. We're just saying that we can't climb inside their minds. Right. And they live differently than we do. And they have different social structures and they have different needs and different instincts as well. Instincts is part of it. And so the, the, tr the struggle with anthropomorphism is that to say, so to say animals don't have any feelings is inaccurate, but to pin human feelings on them isn't accurate either, you know, most of the time. So you have to really be thoughtful about what you're saying and how you're saying it and make sure that you are grounding it in what is factual as well. And right. then how do we maybe use this tool of anthropomorphism to help people relate without necessarily projecting all of these things onto the animals, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think it definitely makes sense. I think, um, because ultimately like, why should we care about anthropomorphism? The way we talk about these animals influences how people feel about animals in all sorts of different situations for better and for worse. So for example, like if you have a cat at home and you're a vegan and you've decided that you also want your cat to be vegan, that's not a moral choice for that cat. It's against their biology. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, if you dress up your animal, putting them in a situation that you feel comfortable with and projecting your own emotions versus thinking about them, probably the, the most jarring example for me that really got me out of my groove, a little bit of anthropomorphizing things. Basically I spent a lot of time with primates. And so it's like very easy once you spend a lot of time with them to feel like, you know, what's going on. And then I became a caretaker for some sloths. Now, if you're not familiar with sloths in their basic biology, they are almost blind. 
They've got some color sense to them. They are colorblind. They primarily navigate via sense of smell and some sense of hearing, and then like looking out for shadows and things like that and upside down. And that is so fundamentally different from anything that any of us ever really experience. not just even if you're different, differently abled and you are someone who has limited vision, but like they have hands that are claws that only work in one direction and that they have to use to suspend themselves. Like it's just completely different biology, but you still would see people making assumptions about how that animal was. If it was sleeping, maybe it looked sad, even though sloth sleep 18 plus hours a day. Mm-hmm. People who wanted to pick the sloth up, not understanding that if you are a sloth and you were removed from your tree from some foreign entity that then like wrapped its arms around you, that that could very easily feel like a predator trying to eat you at very least, and at least be an, you know, uncomfortable experience for you. And people not registering that just because an animal like would sit in their arms and not growl or do something that would be identifiably uncomfortable didn't mean they weren't experiencing their own internal discomfort or, or whatever emotion wasn't reading because they don't make facial expressions. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of ways that we treat animals that we sometimes take for granted that they are experiencing a world in a way that it with some senses that we don't have. And in other ways with senses that are more deficient than we are. So it's, yeah, it absolutely impacts our conservation, our animal welfare, it's important how we talk about these things. It's interesting too, you talking about sloths, because here's one that I get with sloth quite a bit that you probably got at some point as well from a video. Do you remember this video where it was somebody, and I don't remember where it was filmed, but of somebody helping a sloth across the road in the wild? Do you remember this video? And then Mm -hmm. he goes and he puts it on the tree and then the sloth kind of like turns and lifts, uh, lifts an arm at the end of it. And, you know, this video was one of those things that went viral and everyone was like, oh, look, the sloth was grateful. (laughs) The sloth was thanking this person for helping him across the road. And that was, it was always a tough thing because people would tell me this so excitedly. They were like, oh, did you see the video? And it was so sweet at the end. And it's a hard one to respond to because it is making people feel fondly for the sloth and I'm glad you know sloths having to cross roads is a very significant threat you know that they face so I'm glad that this video you know raised some awareness of that but but also to things like you know I mean again I can't read that sloth's mind but there's this was not a sloth waving goodbye or anything like that that's not how they function that's not what he he was probably reaching for a a branch that he thought was there or something like that I haven't watched the video in a long time but you know there was probably something like that where he was reaching for something uh and it has been anthropomorphized in terms of being a wave or a thank you um so but but it had made people get interested as well so it's a double-edged sword you don't want to crush people's dreams all the time either. Like you don't want to, I don't know. The amount of people who are like, (laughs) oh, why aren't the orangutans waving at me? I'm like, because they don't wave. (laughs) Like that's not a greeting for an orangutan. It's like, to me, after you get jaded because you're in the world for so long, Mm -hmm. but you're just kind of like, why would you make the assumption that 
they wave and understand what that is. And, and part of it has to do with their depiction in media, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what we're talking about next is so much of our attitudes are influenced by the sort of media that we consume and how anthropomorphized those animals are. Um, so you mentioned like Winnie the Pooh and in Mickey Mouse and some conversations we've had. So obviously we anthropomorphize the heck out of animals in cartoons. Um, and obviously like whenever I would work with lions, for example, there would be the inevitable kid saying it's Simba mm-hmm. and, and, you know, so like, but in an excited way, you know, yeah. it's a familiar recognizable way. So I think that that's a good thing, but also like, it's hard to explain that then like, you know, in real life, Simba would actually leave its pride and never come back because otherwise him and Mufasa would try and kill each other. (laughs) That that, that is a a something that, you know, is that next level that can be hard to understand when that's your only touchstone for, for information. So there's some studies that show that anthropomorphism has a negative effect on conservation. Um, honestly, guys, I wish I could have read more articles, but those paywalls are everywhere. Like, especially when they're overly anthropomorphized. So when basically you take the animal face out and make it more humanized when even in like, oh, to say the, the fox is sneaky, that's their, their quality. So all foxes are sneaky or all alligators are mean, like that can be detrimental to conservation efforts. But another study I found, which was done with Indonesian school children, looking at a children's book that used what I would consider soft anthropomorphism of mm-hmm. uh, a loris mother and son and focusing on their relationship and what they're doing of, over like the course of the night looking for food. They found that anthropomorphism could actually be helpful in helping kids understand concepts of conservation and to take pro-conservation action. So those kids were less likely to want to take them home as a pet and more likely to report si- seeing one because these are people who live amongst slow loris to tell an adult that there's one in an area. So, so it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. Uh, one of the first examples that I remember of extensively like storyline telling of, of animals was Meerkat Manor on Animal Planet. Do you remember watching Meerkat Manor? I remember Meerkat Manor. I've yeah. talked about this before. I don't watch nature shows too often because it stresses me out. That's what you do. (laughs) Um, So I didn't sit down and watch it regularly, but I know that I, yeah, I I saw bits and pieces of it here and there for sure. It was fairly, I feel like breakthrough at the time to have that like serial storytelling. Yeah. Up to that point, I feel like all the documentaries I had watched, like you might see a lion for a couple scenes in a small snippet of its life being like, okay, I tried to hunt the gazelle and I worked together. And then, then that's all I get, like we would see of them. Meerkat Manor followed a group of habituated meerkats. So this is a study group of meerkats that live in the Kalahari desert. Um, They're part of the Kalahari Meerkat Project, which has been going on for over 25 years. So these are very well studied meerkats, um, the best studied meerkats in the world. And it followed Flower, who was the the matriarch of the show, and her family, their mob, as they encountered all of the challenges that they needed to survive in that area. And it was full of complex storylines and following animals from birth to death in a lot of cases. And so it was, it was so different from everything else. I initially, I mean, I was kind of a kid when it came out. I kind of hated it at first because I was like, <laughs> this is fluff, you know, like, oh, you know, this is like, it's, 
it's TV. It's not science. Mm -hmm. I think looking back, I actually really appreciate it. I haven't watched it in a long time, so I can't tell as far as anthropomorphism, what levels we were at, but these were animals that were well-known and studied. Um, so it wasn't like that. Honestly, maybe that depiction of what we were seeing in some ways was more honest than the story that we're told in some of the other documentaries because it wasn't so cherry picked to depict one particular instance that really was a composite of different shots from different moments in time. So uh, that was really interesting. Sort of what I feel like is a follow up to Meerkat Manor in a way spiritually <laughs> is Penguin Town, which recently got to uh, released on Netflix just like a month or two ago. And I asked Sarah if she would watch Penguin Town so that we could have a discussion about something, not just theoretically, but like how we felt about Penguin Town. Um, so Penguin Town follows African penguins in a small town in South Africa during the breeding season. And it's narrated by Patton Oswalt. And Sarah, I'd love to hear what your opinion of the show is. Well, you used the word delightful here, and I like that you <laughs> used that word because I, for the most part, that is how I felt about it as well. I really did enjoy it. I, uh, I have to say this has almost nothing to do with our discussion, but you may know Patton Oswalt because he was the voice of Remy the rat in Ratatouille. The highly anthropomorphized <laughs> rat. Um, but I love Ratatouille. And so the whole time that I'm listening to him narrate, I'm imagining Remy the rat <laughs> narrating the Excellent. show about penguins, which maybe made it more delightful. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so I, I thought it was good. I actually do think, and, and perhaps perhaps more so than you, I, I do feel that it was very heavy on the anthropomorphism in that, I mean, that's just how it's set up, right? So similar to Meerkat Manor, where you're following this group, all of these penguins have names and they're given a background, you know, and a story and stuff like that. So it is, and that's why, and that's why you care. And that's maybe why I had an more, I had an easier time watching this than I do with some of the more quote unquote regular um, nature documentaries that do sort of just jump around a little bit more. Like you get invested <laughs> in the lives of these individuals for sure. Um, but it was fun. You do learn some things about penguins. You know, they work some natural history and, and conservation uh, aspects into the storyline. So yeah, and there's like eight episodes not super long. I thought it was good, good family fun with Penguin Town. Oh yeah, totally. Like, yeah, for the family, I, uh, spoilers for Penguin Town, by the yeah. way, if you're oh, yeah. this far in, yeah. spoilers it, for Penguin yeah. Town. <laughs> One, I think penguins, it's similar to meerkats, lend themselves well to anthropomorphism because you don't have to change the natural history of the animal to have people relate to their particular biology. So for example, uh, penguins are typically monogamous and they can be monogamous over the course of many years, which you can call them Mr. and Mrs. Bougainvillea. And it doesn't feel like a stretch. Like they nest under a Bougainvillea bush. It's very cute. I love yeah. it. It doesn't feel like a stretch. It actually almost felt weird. Uh, you know, it, it felt so good to call them the Bougainvilleas because <laughs> 
it meant something to their lives. Like they weren't like Mr. and Mrs. Miller, the penguins, like, no, that's where they live is under this bougainvillea bush. And then there's the culverts who live in the culvert. And the wheelbarrows, <laughs> the wheelbarrows, they did have, I, what were they? The aristocrats that they like came up with that lived in like a fancy house. Um, I can't remember. But basically uh, they, they have similar life. Lord and Lady that, Courtyard. Sorry. That's what it <laughs> <laughs> Lord and Lady Courtyard, the aristocrats. And they were, have their, ugh. Um, I love but- it. But you can yeah. see, though, that that is, you know, just by its nature, anthropomorphic, even though, right. yeah, like you said, it it doesn't feel like as much of a stretch and they are tying it in in a really cute way. They don't then have those penguins interact with other penguins and then have like a hierarchy where they're like, oh, it's the courtyards like they they own this land like right. they they just make it an honorific basically that makes it entertaining rather mm-hmm. than feeling like it implies the hierarchy of the rest of it. Some of the cool details that I think made the anthropomorphism work. One, I they, they had Patton Oswald as a third party narrator for the entire show instead of giving the penguins actors to voice them. Yeah. I think that would have crossed the line entirely. Whereas like Patton Oswald was able to be like, hey, this is the stakes. This is the setup. This is what's going on. I do think they crossed over a couple of times into what I would consider overly anthropomorphism for example at one point the wheelbarrow's child is still sticking around the house and they're trying to basically what what if you were a scientist you'd be like they're double clutching which basically means that after their chicks have hatched and raised they had enough time to have another set of babies and so they're like being adults together and the chick was like oh mom and dad like that was like crossing the line to me into their internal monologue that we couldn't make the assumption that a chick would be embarrassed by their parents showing affection to each other. Mm-hmm. But I really liked that the, the camera angles were all from the point of view of the penguin. Yeah, I like that too. So these penguins live in the same town as a bunch of people and they're nesting like on the beaches where there's tourists and in people's yards. <laughs> but all, all of the shots are from the, the penguin's point of view, basically. So like you're not looking at people's faces, you're mostly yeah. looking at their legs which I liked. I thought that was a cool point of view. Yeah. I mean, and it was interesting too, like seeing the, when one of the courtyards had to like run through the party, (laughs) basically. (laughs) Yeah. So that is, it's an interesting literal perspective that you're looking at it. And I, I do think that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of assumptions being made of like, how is that penguin feeling while surrounded by all these humans sort of situation? Right. Perhaps my favorite part of this. So something that makes Penguin Town different, not just in narrative structure, but in setting is that there are humans around. Most of the time we get documentaries and the penguins would be like in Meerkat Manor. There's no humans in Meerkat Manor. It's It's a meerkat society, but they live in the wild, quote unquote, but they don't entirely, they're not entirely wild meerkats in that they live and they're self-sufficient, but they are actually like habituated enough that they can get weights on like babies and have these animals be close to humans. These are just random penguins from what I can tell. I tried to look at production notes for this show to see like how it was made, but they're random penguins. They're an endangered species. They live in an area that just happens to have humans. It's not in the wild quote unquote, but it's still wild habitat. And at one point we are introduced to Junior, who's a penguin who's having trouble shedding. And he gets abducted, quote unquote, by aliens. And it's actually a conservation group called Sand Cob 
that takes him out of his habitat into their conservation center because turns out Junior is extremely injured and unable to molt. And he's able to go into this conservation center to get repaired and then be re-released back out into the wild. And they, they make several appearances here. Sarah, how effective did you feel like their presence was within the, the documentary series? No, I, I loved it. That was probably one of my favorite things about it too. Just sort of keep, like keeping it from Junior's perspective, I thought was really interesting. And I thought, I don't know if, if I'm going to verbalize this appropriately, but like, that's the way that you want it to be. Like they stepped in to help this penguin when this penguin needed help, but they're not trying to intervene and change the narrative in any way, right? They're just trying to help what would be, what should have been a natural process along and then put him back out. Um, So I thought that it was interesting from that standpoint. It's not something that you see a lot in nature documentaries. And I'm, I was familiar with Sandcob before, so I was excited (laughs) to to see them make uh, make an appearance. (laughs) Um, as well. So yeah, I thought it was really good. It's also interesting in the sense that this is kind of tangential, I guess, but, you know, like I said, this was a pretty family friendly thing. There are a couple of bad things that happen, a couple of sad things that happen, but yeah, but so you're watching junior and again, in part because of how you've been set up uh, and the nature of the program, like I was really sad like I was like oh gosh junior you know is not gonna make it and then it's this sort of last minute these hands coming down to pick him up and it it sort of ends the episode on this cliffhanger where junior's like what's happening um but you obviously as the viewer are like oh thank goodness (laughs) like you know he's he's getting safe so just again an interesting way that the anthropomorphism sort of plays into it because you're you're like feeling that like oh how how scared must he be you know yeah right until this comes in so I thought that was an interesting moment too yeah it it puts you in his shoes um I will tell you like how devastating there's a one of the planet earths or something like that they've got like a shoe bill and it's got two babies and like the one baby's beaten up on the other baby and they just need water or they're going to die and like literally the shoe bill comes home and the weak baby they're like oh he needs help from mom and it's like but she's already chosen who will live <laughs> and steps over this baby and it <laughs> they're like in shoe bills, only one chick survives and it's the stronger. And like, you know, that baby dies. Like that's what is implied. And it's like horrific. It's horrible. Birds are brutal. All nature is brutal. Nature is brutal. But it is, it was so like, it was a relief that you would have never seen coming having watched other nature documentaries because humans don't intervene. Like I, I would be the worst documentary maker. I would like dive in and scoop up the little shoe bill and like feed it water and a pipette. And what am I going to even do with it? But, but, um, but they also don't like frame the sand cob as being like, and then angels like put like a bright light coming in from the penguins perspective. He's literally getting abducted by aliens. Like, but they are able to show this important work that's going on. They don't pretend the penguin's grateful for it. Like, right. Yeah. Patton Oswald tells you basically, yeah, that penguin got bit by a sea lion and would have died without it. And that's the stakes are. But the penguin doesn't know that. And the penguin isn't grateful for this help. Mm-hmm. It's just like, 
oh, you pulled me out of the water faster than I wanted to boo. Like that's sort yeah. of what they project onto him, which I liked. Like it's, these are the humans did not get character names or anything like that. It wasn't like, and then Mark from Sandcob came right. over and picked him up. Like, no, they're just, their hands are really involved. Yeah. You barely see any faces and yeah. I think a really clever way to do it. I, I agree. There's some implication in there that like the penguins are aware that they're endangered. That's like not something that I think like, why won't these animals breed? Don't they know that they're two last of their kind? Like <laughs> situation like that we see in a lot of like anthropomorphic cartoons. I'm thinking like Rio or yeah. whatever, you know? Yeah. But, um, but in, yeah, in this situation, like they wouldn't necessarily know that. So I thought like there's certain moments that cross the line, but I had also just come off of watching this. Have you watched Serengeti nope. on Animal Planet? I only watched like one episode and I found myself annoyed <laughs> because I felt like this was where it crossed the line for me. And I think one of the things about anthropomorphism is that it is a very personal thing, how you feel about it. And it also really depends on if you're a high information watcher, or if you're a low information watcher. And I felt this show was like, maybe good for people who had low empathy, but bad for people who have low information, which unfortunately I think is most viewers. And basically Serengeti is on Animal Planet. It's narrated by Lupita Nyong'o. She does an amazing job, but like basically they, com- they intentionally composite many animals and mm-hmm. tell a narrative about the composite character of these oh. different shots. Yeah. So like, it's like flashed across the screen. I'm an animal nerd. So like, I was like, that's a different elephant <laughs> or like that elephant is at a completely different time than what the last shot was, which I found really was distracting, but I, one of the few people who would know. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, and I will say, I, I think that's honestly fairly common oh i agree for them to do that or maybe that's less common than i think a lot of the times what they're doing is just splicing footage of the same animals but they're mixing up the orders and they're you know putting it together in different ways to tell a story um but i i don't think it's terribly uncommon for them to occasionally use different animals too no, I, I agree. I mean, when you see like that classic moment of like the cheetah crouching, getting closer and then the gazelle looks up and like looks around yeah. and then like goes back to eating because it's not sure. And the cheetah, co- like these were not all filmed at the same time. Right. Most of the time, like this is a composite of things. What I didn't like, like about it was just that it, it gave them internal motivation to a point where I didn't feel like it, I, th- I felt like it crossed the line from normal documentary into wildly speculative. (laughs) And I mean, they named all of these characters, which again, like automatically ups your empathy factor. It's a character now, it's not just that, but it gave them like longer storylines that you were following over the course of at least the episode. I don't think it goes across many episodes, but that one, I felt like it really just like would give them motivation, like maybe revenge or things like that. Mm that we don't know that animals have, let alone care about in that particular moment. Right. So I felt like that to me was one of those overuse of anthropomorphism into something that could basically felt like the Lion King in some ways. (laughs) Like that's, I felt like wasn't as effective, but I Mm -hmm. felt like Penguin Town was super effective in it. Do you have any examples for us, Sarah, of 
things that you have felt have been effective or ineffective? I know you, you have a idea of like Disney documentaries in the past. Right. Well, so here's the thing when, when we talk like this whole discussion and when we're talking about things that cross the line for us or things that are effective and ineffective for me, like you were just saying, Casey, it depends a little bit on who you are, like what knowledge and interest level you're coming in with, but it also depends on what you mean by making it effective. So I mentioned that observed planet I mean, that's heavily anthropomorphized. It's absolutely. So, I mean, the whole thing is narrated by mother nature <laughs> and it does give individual animals, you know, their own voices that are talking. Whereas, you know, like if they'd have done that in Penguin Town, I would not have appreciated it. In Absurd Planet, it's very clearly it's a, not. such yeah. a comedy, it's you know, and such yeah. a, yeah. Uh, that it doesn't bother me as much from that standpoint, but you just need to be aware of it going in. And then I think, yeah, you know, we talk about all of those, the the Disney animated movies, whether you're talking about The Lion King or something like Bambi, right, that um, anthropomorphizes these animals. I don't have a problem with those because they're not set out to be nature documentaries right and I think they can be super effective in building empathy with kids and exposing kids in some way to nature and I don't mind it you know I I love it when I have a kid come up to you know if I'm talking about lions and they'll be like Simba I use that you know like I think it's a great thing to to bring in and then as they get older you start to build out those conversations of yeah like Simba but actually did you know that this is you know whatever you can you can use that storyline from the Lion King to say well you know what when Simba left that's actually what would happen (laughs) you know and Simba wouldn't come back Mufasa and Scar, they probably would have been working together, you know, so you can, you can use some of those things to start to build that more accurate picture. So I don't necessarily have a problem with some of these things, but I do, yeah, depending on what the medium is and depending what the purpose is, I do think something that's set out to be a nature documentary or a docu-series needs to at least hold its ground in reality, right? I, that, that feels yes. like a very vague thing to say. I think that's a, a good point, Sarah, of saying like that they need to be grounded in some sort of reality. Like if you're going to posit a particular human characteristic, it should come from something factual about right. the biology of the animal, the natural history, the particular circumstance that the animal is in, encouraging people to uh, to take on the mindset of an animal in a particular situation and to say reasonably in a situation where a gazelle is being chased by the cheetah that they are scared and that emphasizes the stakes of the situation as well it doesn't just become a well circle of life you know things like it 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 becomes more personal when you put yourself in a situation where you're evoking particular emotions but yeah, I think it just runs a little bit wild when we start to get into the like, oh, they have a plan or right. there's, you know, the, trying to identify very specific motivating factors that we just can't really back up 
that's where I think it becomes a little bit more dangerous in something that kind of purports to be factual. And I think that that's the issue with things like being on Animal Planet, for example. Mm-hmm. Animal Planet started as something that was very like documentary factual based. And so when you add in those other elements, it can start to bleed over. It's hard for your audience to be able to self-select and say like, I know that this is factual and this one's drama (laughs) or, you know, things like that. Right. I'm looking at an article from the wildlife society And uh, this is a a quote from Keith Somerville, who is a professor in the Center for Journalism at the University of Kent. He was talking about a paper, I guess, that he'd published in People and Nature. And this is a really simple quote, but I I think that it it sort of sums up my feelings about it. It's that wild documents. Wildlife documentaries need to entertain, but they also need to be accurate. I think right from the start, you need to take advice from conservation scientists and zoologists and follow their advice far more than those pushing you more towards entertainment. I like that in that, like I do, cause I do recognize, and you know, the reason why I love like the Disney nature movies and things like that, that do have a definite story arc. They are obviously, they've manipulated footage to tell a story uh, and all of that, but they are going to get people to watch and care, but they also take advice, you know, they, they have animal professionals who are advising on things as well. And so I think, you know, that's the balance that you need to, to find is how do we make this captivating for people, but we need to still make sure that we're being as accurate as we can. And you start to lose that accuracy for sure. When you go overboard on the anthropomorphization. I do also, when you were talking about studies about the effects of anthropomorphization, (laughs) I did also find an article talking about, they basically looked at internet traffic after the airing of nature documentaries and tracked like the uptick in people searching uh, for these animals. So I think this, they were doing it with planet earth, one of the plant, maybe it was planet earth too. So basically, yeah, they looked at data from Twitter and Wikipedia uh, to understand how people were behaving after watching like, the nature Wikipedia, I totally understand. I think it's interesting that Twitter is also the no, other I one. I think it was just easily, it's easy hashtagable. Like they, it's oh yeah. Easy, easy to track things. And so, I mean, it was talking about how little screen time, planet, this was Planet Earth 2, it was talking about how little screen time they devoted to environmental issues and that that followed in the social media action afterwards, that there was very little discussion about uh, environmental issues, but it did increase people's interest in species that were featured. Um, and so they were seeing people react to species that were heavily featured, whether they were the charismatic megafauna or not, species that got more screen time got more searches basically uh, on the internet. So people were searching for information on the animals they'd just seen. The species that got the most airtime also got the most visits on Wikipedia. Uh, Those same species still had higher page visits rate, visit rates up to six months 
after the show aired than they did before the show aired. And they said animals like the golden mole uh, received little or no attention before the broadcast, but their Wikipedia pages were regularly visited after Planet Earth 2. Galapagos racer snakes <laughs> got a Wikipedia oh, page. Wow, after, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah, after that show aired, that's the one where they were chasing the lizard. That clip was crazy and went viral. If so, you have, yeah, have all of that, that to it. just say, you know, even though we recognize the potential issues with anthropomorphism, I do think that there's some benefit there as well, just by generating interest right so even if people are maybe tuning into these and not always getting the exact right idea about things I would still rather they start caring and maybe have things a little wrong than to not care at all I uh, I think I 100% agree maybe <laughs> maybe I 98% agree sure. I have reservations but I think maybe this brings up a different point it's just that at what point do we then convert that interest into action? Right. And that's the trick. That's that, that is something I thought about with Penguin Town is that like, they talked, like they didn't, I don't think ever said the word sand cob. You saw it on the shirt of sand cob stands for like South African, South African. They do birds. Bird conservation. Gosh, darn it. We'll look at it, but while we're looking at this I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. South African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds. It's trying to think of what that second C was, coastal. Yeah, they do like birds, like we had a friend who went and helped them out with some uh, flamingo rescue. So they do all sorts of really amazing stuff for bird conservation. We didn't mention their name in there. I also didn't feel like maybe we spent enough time, we talked about them being endangered, but like, why? Why are they endangered and what can we do? Is it because, like, are we seeing them nest in as high numbers in populated towns like the one we see in Penguin Town? Or are we seeing that as less ideal habitat for them? What, how can we talk a little bit more about, like, we care about these characters. Gosh, I hope there's a season two because I'm down. It's delightful. And that's what I would have wanted to see in a season two is what are the threats? Why are they endangered? Obviously you've highlighted that they have dangers as individuals, that it's very difficult to raise a penguin chick that like, you know, you might become a single parent. You might break up with your partner if there's a weather disaster, but what are the systemic causes behind the population decline. And the things that threaten these animals are things like habitat loss. It's things like overfishing or I, climate change. I think change. they did mention overfishing. Like it was a yeah, I one think you're sentence right too. thing. But, but then how do we say like, go to Seafood Watch, which right. would help you select sustainable things. How, how can we say, check out Sand Cob to see some of the awesome work yeah. they're doing and support them. How can we transfer that interest into, okay, now the show's over. My mind is going to empty that stuff out because that's what it does on things on Netflix. And I guess I'll rewatch it again in six months when I forgot. But instead say like, here's your action item. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, that's part of what I was just sharing though too, is I think, you know, sometimes people might do it. Like that's you and I already have some of a background in this. So we're less likely to maybe watch the show and then just get on and search something. Although there were things that it did make me like, oh, I need to research more about that uh, type of thing. But I mean, we are, we do see it. We see 
we're apparently, or at least this one article said that we're seeing it, you know, this increase of interest online uh, after watching some nature documentaries. So hopefully that will be a, you know, user generated, like they will find, you know, if they were really interested in that part of the story and they're like, oh, who were those aliens that abducted right. Junior? You know, they're going to Google Sandpab and see what they're all about, you know? So I think that it could be self-driven. I would love for them to have just put something and I mean I guess they could have done Hold and I would have missed just it. a little bit but, but yeah like put something up on the screen saying you know sand cub was featured in this episode to learn more go visit you know xyz you know and I think that would be a really easy thing to do to just give people a direct resource um, I want to know if like sand cob registered an increase in donations after penguin town comes out yeah and i would love to see maybe maybe this is like completely out there but you you've taken your characters you've had your anthropomorphization of them you've hopefully made people care how much legwork afterwards are we relying on people to then take that like i enjoyed these characters who are penguins in a tv show and switch it into a conservation action mode and maybe that's that's in the end. I mean, we use the tool of anthropomorphization as conservation educators to have an end goal. And that end goal oftentimes, I, I guess I don't see the end goal as just empathy. I, I see in the end, the, that empathy can't just be like, oh, I really like, you know, I, I understand the plight of this orangutan, the rainforest is burning. <laughs> like, like yeah. how do we then transfer that into, okay, then we need this, this particular action. And that's where I think that we need to be really like studying more. And some people are about how that anthropomorphism is helping or hurting animal welfare and animal conservation. Yeah. That, that article that I was talking about, they did also look at donations and they didn't find a link between planet earth to airing and an increase in donations but literally like they were like we we talked with two wildlife charities <laughs> and they're you know they're like there's a lot of different Sample aspects there and small. obviously there's a lot of you know organizations that people could be choosing to donate to so it would be harder to track in that way and then i did also there was something else i read that really like was ripping on actually penguin town specifically Oh, really? For, I tried to find stuff. For not doing that. They were like, this, you know, this is the problem with the world today, basically, that we've just created this like fluff piece about penguins and we're like laughing at how cute they are. Well, you know, they are going extinct and we're, or we're not even talking about that they're endangered. And, you know, like it was a very harsh article and I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, because but I'm I sympathetic to the outcome, but I do think that there are things that they did like but there, there, there's value too. Right. And I guess my, th I mean, I, I'm with you definitely. Like I do, I, I think that we should always be giving a, here's how you can help thing, but I can also see it as this documentary is one part of a multi-purpose tool. And so this show is building the, the empathy that we need. And then there are other things and other resources that are going to be the ones that are responsible for, for building 
the action. So I guess I just want them to be integrated. Like I want them to be in communication with each other, that if that's one tool, how can we use the tools to build off each other? I I agree with you. And I, I think, you know, that's the sand cob would have been such an easy, you know, way to do that for this one. And so that's frustrating, but also, you know, maybe there will be a season two and maybe they will build more of that, you know, into it. We'll see. But I, I was cheered by the one article about the, you know, increase in people at least searching for these animals after documentaries aired. I think that's, I think that's good. I think that does show that they are, you know, serving some purpose. They're getting people interested enough um, to take that next step. Because I I have seen that also as a negative with anthropomorphization. Boy, you were right about how many times we were going to mispronounce this word. Uh, That too much anthropomorphism is going to lead to people caring specifically about those individuals oh, and yeah. not for the species as, as a, a whole. whole, which is a problem that I have felt sometimes in our field and why I always try to focus more on the species as a whole when I am talking about animals. Like I'll use individuals for sure, but I try... I, I try to focus more on the bigger picture story, um, but I've, I've seen that as a possible challenge. That is it. a great point. Outside of media, working in a field where we had animals in human care, and then you watch people fall in love with these amazing animals, which they should because they're amazing, mm-hmm. but, but have their focus be so narrowed to the individuals that they're seeing in front of them and not realizing that there are just as amazing, complex individuals living out in the wild and suffering from the population decline that, yeah, I think that's, that warrants an even further conversation. I don't want to get too long today. So I, I think, I think I'm going to cut us off. I'm yes, going to cut us do. off, but that was um, good. That was a good discussion. Yeah. This is such a big topic and a hard a topic, topic. And there's so much still that we don't know. And that we're trying to learn, not just about how animals perceive the world and sort yes. of how they live but also just about how do we humans. talk about it like yeah. yeah yeah how do we talk about it and how, how do we perceive we, it how do we foster these connections and lead to action and all of that so still more to learn could talk about this all day so thanks for uh, organizing this discussion Casey of course uh maybe we'll we'll talk more about this in the future I'm sure but stick around we're going to talk about our conservation action plan. Welcome back to the last portion of our episode. Thanks for hanging in there with us, guys. This is where we give you a take-home action for the week. Some things, I have a couple of them. So first, if you're an educator who talks about animals in any part of your job, or if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle or have small children around, one of the best practices that you can use for anthropomorphism is to use it for animals that are not easily anthropomorphized. And so that includes invertebrates and snakes, things like that, reptiles, right? Amphibians. Um, It's really easy to look at a monkey and be like, yeah, I can project my human emotions upon them, but it's a lot harder for animals that we don't necessarily understand their motivations. So I encourage you to try and get 
the child in your life or children in your lives to start to try and take the perspective of an animal that is not so easy to do it. So that can be not a dog, not a cat, but like the ants on the, the street. What are they doing? You know, what, what must it be like to live amongst us trying to promote that empathy? But I did talk about conservation action in regards to that, which wasn't the plan. Actually, my plan today was not to talk about anthropomorphism, not leading to conservation action and that, that gap that we were talking about. So that actually is going to be my take home for the rest of everybody is if you have watched a nature documentary that really moved you or went to a place that had animals and someone employed their techniques of anthropomorphism and made you care about an animal, look up how you can help them. It's personalized Good to you. One. So, like, don't just go on their Wikipedia page. Your job is to find a conservation organization that can tell you what actions you can take. Sometimes that's monetary support, but sometimes it's things like for penguins, for Penguin Town, eating more sustainable seafood or switching away from certain types of seafood that are not sustainable. You can find that on seafoodwatch.org, I believe. And if you're in the U.S., that's a great resource for you to be able to find stuff like that. Climate change is an issue for penguins. So finding out ways to reduce your personal footprint or call Congress because they're mm -hmm. working on an infrastructure bill that could make a really huge difference in our nation's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. This is probably true also for you living in other countries. There are ways that our governments can help us out. So that's for penguins. If you watch penguin town along with us, but if you, any, you've been moved by an animal and felt a personal connection and felt like you knew what they were thinking, you've anthropomorphized them. Look at how you can help that individual animal. And I really look forward to hearing from you guys about how you yeah. did that action. Yeah. Tell us, tell us what animal it was and what you're going to do to support it. I love this one. I'm so excited. Yeah. Again, it it doesn't have to be money or anything, but you're finding a conservation action that's yeah. personalized to you and your interests. Okay. So, Love it. so once you found your animal and your action, you can tell us by visiting us in a few different places. We're on Facebook at a little greener podcast. We are on Instagram at a little greener pod, and you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. We always love hearing from you, whether it's related to that questions, feedback on past episodes, things you're interested in learning about on future episodes, whatever it is, let us know. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see yeah. you next week here. Nope. You'll hear we'll us talk next to you week. next week. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. That's easy. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.